Well, good morning, church. Everybody doing well this morning? Survived the second winter, and now we're into the second spring. All right. Well, my name is Barney, and uh, I have a lot to say, <laughs> so I'm going to jump right in. Before we do that, I, didn't, the, didn't this worship, wasn't this awesome? That's just, it's awesome. Well, today, I want to talk to you about probably one of the most exciting stories in the Scripture. It's, uh, you see, I really love a good story or a, a movie about war and fighting, and I like it when the odds are not in favor of the good guys. Do you like things like that? But they still win. That's what I like about it. So I like to see the good guys win. Now, don't get me wrong. I want the, the storyline to have twists and turns that convince you that the good guys are going to lose. So you got to have that, too. you got to have that. So I also want there to be plot twists that make you say, what the heck is going on here? What is, what is this about? So I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Uh, I kind of think George Lucas is probably a genius. Uh, but I love it when all of a sudden something happens or a different character appears and you have no idea who they are or how they play into the story. He does that a lot. Have you noticed? And it's generally just to get you the what, to watch the next Star Wars movie that's coming out, which is in its like 130th uh, episode by now. So this, that is precisely what's going to happen today in our ongoing saga of Abram, who will later become known as Abraham. While, while parts of this story are... Uh, they are exciting and fun to hear, and they're fun to tell, but some of it are the most challenging scripture in the Bible. So we're going to be both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, so it might seem like we're jumping around a bit. That's because we will. We will be doing that. So one of the most amazing things about movies or stories that you read is when they're based on a true story. A lot, I love it when they say, this movie was based on a true story. It just makes it more interesting. Today's message is about a story that's not only based on actual events, but there's also archaeological evidence to back up that these stories, this story that I'm going to tell you about actually happened. So a couple of weeks ago, Dwayne gave you a little uh, teaser about, about some of this when he said uh, that general, that that. Abram's going to become General Abram. So we're going to, more on that here just in a little bit. So there are many interesting things that happen in Genesis 14. One of, the, one of that is this is the first war that we find in the Bible. Now, and it's a big war. It's international in its scope. It's four kingdoms against five kingdoms. This story has implications that, that reach far beyond this bunch of kings in what is now the Middle East going to battle over money and land. That, that never stops. That ha that's ha still happening today. But this story has, goes far beyond that. This story is going to show us another chapter in the life of Abram.
But this story goes beyond Abram. This story is going to give us some insight, and this is the important piece of this. So if you, if you have a takeaway, it, it needs to be this. This story is going to give us insight into the role that Jesus plays in our everyday lives. Now, I know that's a leap, and we're going to get there. So we're continuing to follow Abram, whose name will later be changed to Abraham in a couple of chapters ahead. So this is the same man that Yahweh, the Lord God, said, has, he, he told him to leave his country, leave your people, leave your father's household, and go to the land that I'm going to show you. I'll make you into a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those that curse you. And all the people, he said, all the people on earth are going to be blessed through you. So there were promises that were made by God, and God's promises are, are, are true. They always are true. So you can be sure that God's going to follow through. Uh, we've seen in Scripture what we generally find out about the promises of God are that it's man that derails the plan. We're the ones that derail what God's plan is for us. We're the ones that don't hold up our end of the plan or our, end, our piece of what God has told us to do. So we, uh, we've been talking about threats. We've kind of had a theme throughout in Genesis. And there are threats to the promises that God made. And we're going to be talking about some of those today. We're going to reveal maybe a couple more of those threats. So I want to go first, I want to go to Genesis chapter 14. Now, <laughs> these names are almost unpronounceable, so we're going to, we're going to roll right through them. Uh, I have looked them up, Dwayne, I've looked them up in every Hebrew, Greek, whatever, and they, they all, I said, so we're going to go with it. This is going to be the Appalachian version. <clears throat> Amen. <laughs> At the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Keter-Lomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Adma, Shemeber, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these kings later joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years, this is an important piece, for 12 years they had been subject to Keter Lomar, but in the 13th year they rebelled. Now, because these names and places are not a familiar piece of any story, none of you woke up this morning thinking about, I wonder if he's going to talk about Keter Lomar. Nobody thought that. So because it's difficult to read this and understand what's happening, I want to break down the story a little bit for you. So this conflict is really fairly simple. There are four kings led by Keter Lomar who have ruled this, who've ruled this region for about, for about 12 years. And the area that they're in is, is this major trade route. So a lot of people going back and forth. And Keter Lomar and his allies have forced all the other kingdoms in this area to pay taxes to him. <laughs> so it was very uh, uh, wise on his part, a good way to get money. So Bera, the king of Sodom, and his group of confederate kings, they lived in the south, they opposed him. They've been subservient to this man, 
for 12 years. But in the 13th year, they said, we've had enough. We're going to rebel. We're not going to pay taxes to Keter Loamar anymore. Well, you can imagine how Keter Loamar felt about that. In the 14th year, so he gives them a year to think about what they've uh, sent out to do. But in the 14th year, he's had enough. He rounds up all of his allies, and they go on the attack to bring these five rebel kingdoms back into submission. Keter Lomar and his allies just start wreaking havoc on everybody in their path. While they're on the way uh, to crush these five kings they, who've stopped paying taxes to him, they happen to run on to six other kingdoms, so they wipe them out as well. Might as well get these guys out of the way. They take all the plunder. They take slaves. It is ugly. They, this is what is known in, in, military, in military tactics as scorched earth policy. You overthrow everything. You take all the plunder. Anyone who fights is killed. And those who don't fight are taken as slaves. Leave nothing standing. This is what Keter Lomar was doing, and he was good at it. So on their way to subdue the five rebelling kingdoms, Keter Lomar and his allies overthrow these these four other kingdoms just because they could. They did. This is significant because three of those four were the were the people that you read about in the scripture. You know the giants, the Rephites. These these guys were seven feet tall. Three of those that he overthrew were the were the race of giants that you read about in, in, in Scripture. The Rephites that, that he just crushed, their name means the terrible ones. Not good guys. And he, King Keter Lomar and his armies of three allied kingdoms were warriors. They, they, they were some bad people. So they are now nearing the valley of Siddim, where, where the king of Sodom and his allies, they've drawn up their battle lines against Keter Loamar. So far you're good. Are you following me? As you can probably guess, this battle didn't end well for Bera, the king of Sodom, uh, and his four allied kingdoms. Keter Loamar and his allies, they just crushed these, these people. Uh, he, they, got, they took captives, they crushed Bera, the king of Sodom, and all those that stopped paying taxes. They seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, all their food. They, they took slaves. They took many people captive. But I want you to look at verse 12. They also took Lot. Who, do, you, do you remember who Lot was? It tells you Abraham's nephew and his possessions and departed because he was living in Sodom. So Lot, Abram's nephew, taken, taken captive. And, 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 and everything he owns is gone now. So, Dwayne told the story a couple of weeks ago about Abram's herdsmen and, and Lot's herdsmen. They kind of separated ways. Abram took what was not the greatest part of Canaan, and he let Lot take whatever piece he wanted, which was the rich pasture land. And that's where Lot was. So the last time we heard about Lot in Genesis 13, he was living in this rich plain of Jordan. Then he moved his tents as far as Sodom. So he had evidently moved again 
when Keter Loamar came in and ransacked the town and took everything. Lot was living right in the middle of Sodom at this point. So he's taken captive. So Lot's choice to move into Sodom proved to be not a good one. It was a foolish choice for many, many uh, reasons. The scripture tells us that the wickedness of Sodom was very great. The grass may have been greener, but that didn't make Sodom a good choice. Lot's choice to move into Sodom nearly cost him his life. So back to our story of the battle, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to speed this up a little bit. A man who had escaped from the battle came and reported to Abram that Lot had been captured and taken, and taken prisoner. Now, Abram was living, it says, near the great trees of this man named Mamre, an Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Abner, all of whom, and why it's important, they were allied with Abram. So Abram made friends when he moved into the area that he, that, that he went into. So these guys, Mamre, Eshcol, and Aner were all allies of Abram. Look at verse 14. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, that's about 100 miles. So he's chasing these guys. He's chasing these guys that have just crossed like seven or eight different kingdoms. Wait a minute. Is Abram crazy? Surely he doesn't think that his 318 men are going to overthrow the armies of four kingdoms of Kedronomer. Surely he doesn't think that. He's not that foolish. He's smarter than that, right? They've just fought and prevailed over six other kingdoms, three of which were giants. And Abram is going to take 318 men and fight them? What makes Abram think he's not going to get slaughtered by this bunch of maniacs? In the Genesis series, we've been focusing on threats, those things that could impact the promises of God that God had made to Abram. And right now, it would seem very likely that Abram is getting ready to get himself and over 300 other people wiped out, killed. Or could it be? Is there a chance that Abram actually believed what Yahweh had said to him? Is there a chance that he believed that when God said he would make him a great, a great nation and that he blessed him and those that blessed him would be blessed? You think he actually believed that? I think he did. I think he did. I don't know that I would have wanted to be in that group as far as the 318 men. You're like, Abram, what are you thinking? This is certainly where Abram becomes General Abram now, Dwayne. This army of 318 men, men, he devises a plan that is brilliant. He waits till it's night. He divides his men into two groups. One group is in the front of Keter Lomer's armies, and the second group is in behind them. And both groups attack at the same time. And by golly, it worked. It says that he, in verse 16, he recovered all of the goods and brought back his relative Lot and all his possessions together with the women and the other people. It worked. He crushed these guys. So verse number, uh, verse number 17, after Abram returned from defeating Keterlomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him. He was one of the ones that had also been taken captive in, in the valley of Shave, that is the king's valley. 
Then Melchizedek, king of, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So, wait a minute. Now you're confused, right? All of a sudden, we have another character in the story. One that wasn't there before. This fellow named, his name is Malchizedek. Malchizedek. We kind of have a George Lucas Star Wars moment. <laughs> we have a king show up who wasn't there before. So, but he's also a priest of God Most High. So, more on him in just a minute. Go to verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people. So he's the king and they have taken all his people. So he goes up to Abram and said now, and, he had, and, and Abram had rescued all these people. Give me the people and you keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my, what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to his friends, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. So first, Abram's just come back from winning this battle, and some of the people that he had actually rescued her coming up and the king of Sodom he comes up he wasn't a good guy his name in Hebrew literally means with evil that's Bera the king of Sodom so the first words out of his mouth in verse 21 are give me do you see that give me in contrast the first words out of out of this Strange guy that's, that's a priest of God Most High, Melchizedek, is blessed. Keep in mind that Abram was already, at this point, a very, very wealthy man. Uh, but the offer of all of the plunder that the king of Sodom would have greatly increased his wealth. But Abram was having none of it. He certainly did not want to be indebted to a wicked kingdom. Abram did not even give it a second thought. It's, it's, it's almost like he already had his mind made up. Now, I want to tell you where we're at in the story. I want to stop for just a second and orient you just a little bit. This is before Moses, before the law was given, before the tabernacle, before there were high priests. This is all a long time before that. So what about this mysterious guy, Melchizedek? Where did he come from? Who were his parents? Where did he live? There's so much speculation on who this man was. Many of the views of who he was are either not based in Scripture at all or they're loosely based in Scripture. There are a lot of different views on this person. If you study this at any length, you're going to run into literally dozens of different ideas of who he was. I believe, I'm going to tell you my, my thought on him first of all because it's, it's, uh, I want you to know what I think about it. I believe from the Bible that Melchizedek was a real historical figure, a human who was born 
He lived, he died, he had parents. Now, more on him in just a couple of minutes. So let's just start with what we have in the story that we just read. In verse 14, we see that Melchizedek was the king of Salem. Now, Salem is a town that you will recognize, you just don't know yet. It, it's, it is what we now know to be ancient Jerusalem. So it was a part of the name of Jerusalem. Salem, Jerusalem. And, and uh, it's, it's derived from Salem, or Salem, is derived from the Hebrew word for shalom, which means peace. So Melchizedek was the king of peace. One of the most striking things about this man, that his name, taken from the two words that I told you early, earlier, Malki and Tzedek, T-Z-D-E-C-K, Malki Tzedek, so which means king of righteousness. So his name means king of righteousness. He brings food out to Abraham, but not just food, it's bread and wine. Does this remind you of anything? Does this sound familiar to you? Sound vaguely like what we do to commemorate Jesus' death on the cross? It does kind of sound a little bit like that. Verse 18 tells us that he was a priest of God Most High. But wait a minute, we're hundreds of years before the law that was, in, that was given that instituted what we know as the Jewish priesthood. And when that priesthood is instituted in, in Israel, you had to be from a certain Hebrew family, the family of Aaron and the tribe of Levi, or you could not be a priest. It was impossible. But we're several hundred years from the law and the establishment of this priesthood. So, as a matter of fact, at this point, Abram has no kids. The promise of God that he's going to make him a great, a great nation had not been fulfilled yet. He has no kids at this point. And by the way, he's about uh, 78, 80 years old. So, but the scripture we just read clearly says that Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High. We're not done. There are answers. We're just not there yet. So let's quickly recap. Abram has been blessed by this king who is also a priest of God Most High. Abram recognizes that this king is worthy of honor because he gives him a tenth of everything. Is everybody clear right now, right? Everybody good? Okay. There is a Bible study concept that's going to help us get to the understanding of what's actually happening here. This, this concept is really simple, but applying it is not always that easy. So, first of all, that concept, are you ready for it? Let the Bible interpret the Bible. I know that's profound. I came up with that on my own. <laughs> Sounds easy, right? So in our study today, this is going to be, we're going to need to do that. It will be very, very evident. And, and, and this is where, for example, an Old Testament passage of, of Scripture is more clearly spelled out or defined in the New Testament. So you, you have, uh, the, j just to be clear in our story today, you're, it, it, we're going to implement some of this. You've heard Nathan talk about this idea, this Latin word called sensus planor. Do you remember that? Do you remember what it means? Does anybody remember what it means? Okay. I don't either. No, I'm, I'm joking. Uh, 
it, it, it literally means a fuller sense or a deeper meaning, a sensus planor. That means that you, you, there is a deeper meaning in what is being said. So a good example of that is our scripture today. We're going to get a deeper meaning of Genesis 14 that we just read from Hebrews. So there are numerous other examples throughout the Bible, but we're not going to have time to go into all of them today or we'd be here like this, you know, this time tomorrow. So the next thing we need to do that, that, that's going to be helpful in understanding this character Melchizedek. And I want you to listen. This is going to get a little bit complicated, but I'm going to clear it up, okay? I'm going to, I promise you that I will. We, we, have to, uh, we have to understand a couple of terms. This is real easy. I'm going to make it easy for you. The two words are type and antitype. Got it? Type and antitype. So typology is actually very, very simple. It's a special kind of symbolism, and symbol is just something that represents something else. So we're good so far, right? The type of something in the Old Testament simply points forward to the antitype in the New Testament. So the type of something in the Old Testament points forward to the antitype that's in the New Testament. So the antitype now, listen closely. I'm going to give you an example that's going to make it real clear. The antitype then becomes the reality of what that type is showing us or pointing to. I know that sounds complicated. You're going to get it. Number 21, it's not on the screen. God commands Moses, you're going to remember this story, to hoist up this serpent or snake on a pole in the wilderness. And Moses is... is, is then to tell the people, God says, you tell the people that when they look on that serpent or that snake on the pole, that they will live. They'll be cleansed and they will live. That is a type. You got it? The snake on the pole is a type. So, and the antitype, the reality which this points to, that foreshadows it, is pointing to the lifting up of the Lord Jesus on the cross, providing the atoning sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. In the same way in which looking on the serpent provided cleansing for the life of the people in the Old Testament. Do you see it? Now you're, so the type is a snake on the pole. The antitype is Christ on the cross. Now you're thinking, Brian, where in the world did you come up with this? Where did you get this idea? John, John chapter 3 verses verse, uh, 14 and 15 where Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus just told us that the serpent in the wilderness was the type that pointed to the antitype, that the snake on the pole represented Jesus on the cross. Are we clear? We got it. Remember that, because there's a test after this. Jesus takes this Old Testament picture and applies it to what's going to happen in his death. So you see it. This is the snake on the pole. Is the, is, is, uh, the, the type is the snake and the antitype is Christ on the cross. So, for example, when, see, when we say someone is a type of Christ, we're saying that a person in the Old Testament, and I'm just using Old Testament and New Testament, is a uh, we're, we're, we're saying that they behave or they correspond or they, what they do is similar to Jesus' character or actions in the New Testament. So this is going to help us figure out the role of our friend Melchizedek. 
okay? To help us see what's happening in this story, we need to go to one of the other places in Scripture where this man is actually mentioned, Psalm 110.4. Now, I'm going to speed this up a little bit because I'll run out of time if I don't. This is a psalm of King David, and he's writing down what God is saying to him about the Messiah who is to come. He says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of, lo and behold, Melchizedek. Now we're going to jump. We're going to take a little jump here. Hebrews 6, verse 19. And I'm going to bring all this back in here in just a second. Hebrews 6, 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So David and the writer of Hebrews know something about the role of this man Melchizedek. And we read this part, this verse 19, and we see this steadfast anchor of the soul. Man, we get warm and we feel good about that. And then we get all this curtain stuff. What's going on here? What is going on? The first problem that we have is that we are at a cultural disadvantage. We read verse 19, and we seem to get that part, that this anchor of the soul, that makes you feel good. But we see this thing about this other stuff and the veil and all that. It's not so much. And Jesus being a forerunner, because he is our high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, we just made a huge leap here. We made a huge leap. We started with Abram and Lot, and this war where Abram rescues Lot, beating this band of kings trying to take over. And then this strange king, who is also a priest, he comes out. And we don't have a lot of information about him. And now we're jumping forward thousands of years in the book of Hebrews. Everybody clear? We all good so far? The writer of Hebrews has been telling his readers about the unchanging promises of God. We know something about that. Promises of God are what Abram was going on. And he, so he is now explaining what it means for Jesus to be our high priest. Now, I mentioned that we're at a disadvantage, and some of this is because most of us don't deal with priests very much. I I know we have some folks in here that have a Catholic background, but that's different, that is a totally different system than the priests in Judaism. So we have this cultural gap between us and the writer of Hebrews. Priests were very familiar to the people in in the first century church. They regularly encountered the Jewish priests. So This was an ordinary part of their lives. Our daily lives are much different than that. We simply don't come into contact on a regular basis with priests. We don't deal with them. It's not a part of what we do. So the first thing we need to do is get a a better understanding of the role of priests and what it means for Jesus to be our priest. This is not historical minutia. It's not. This is a very important part of what Jesus came to do. If we say that we follow him, we have to understand that this is a critical part of what he came to do. Realizing that he has become the high priest, we need to figure out what this means. So look at Hebrews 5.1. It's one of, the, one of the helpful definitions first of what it means to be a priest. 
Hebrews 5.1 says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Now, that's pretty clear and simple. Even if we don't have a background on dealing with priests in our lives, we can understand what's being said there, right? This is a divinely appointed role to act as a go-between two, between two parties, between God and man. So there's some sort of a breach that has, ha- that has happened. That breach between God and man was not made by God. It was made by mankind. And there was a group of people that were acting on behalf of humanity before God. They were the priests. We can grasp that to a certain degree, but if we've not been raised up in Judaism or anything like that, or any of the other faiths that deal with a priest, we may not be clear on this idea. But we actually do have something that might be an example of a mediator, a go-between in our everyday life. I'm going to use, I'm going to do one of Nathan's polls. How many of you have ever dealt with a lawyer? A lawyer, an attorney. It seems that most times that you deal with, you deal with a lawyer, it isn't because things are going great, most generally. And, uh, or it could just be that you need, an, you need an advocate. You need someone to plead your cause, to act on your behalf. If you've ever had to do any type of business dealings or sign a contract, uh, you want someone that understands everything so that you are represented, right? Even if you wanted to just talk to a judge uh, about any matter, it would be very difficult, if not impossible, for you to do that if you don't have someone who represents you before the judge, correct? If you went down here to the courthouse in Claremont County, and you just walked in and said, hey, I want to talk to the judge, uh, they, might, they might ask you what your issue is. Are you stupid? Or, but most likely they would say, hey, hey listen, friend, this isn't how it works. You might say, well, listen, I got this legal issue. I need to bring it before the judge. I need to talk to the judge. And if you're polite and nice, they might say, look, you've got to get a a lawyer. You have to get someone to represent you. Now, if you're making a fool of yourself, you might talk to the judge for a totally different thing, and you won't enjoy. So someone who can plead your case before the judge, that's an attorney. That attorney would be your go-between, your mediator, who would represent you to the judge. You're not qualified to do all of the process that's required by that system to make sure that you're represented. Do you see the correlation? You see that? Okay. So, you know, you're never thinking about it. You're never thinking about an attorney until something goes wrong or you need to have a mediator. And it, it's almost like the, uh, the courthouse is kind of like a temple, I guess, right? That's that. Uh, maybe, and the attorneys and everything are like priests. Ah, okay, that's a stretch. All right. You can't just go in there and hang out, all that. But although the judges do wear these priestly looking robes, right? Okay, so you get where I'm going with this. So uh, attorneys are a group of people who are uniquely trained, they are qualified to represent you in matters where you need help on a legal matter, you need an advocate. This is similar to the role of a priest. 
the idea of the priesthood is a major part of the storyline of Scripture. It, it, it's something has gone terribly wrong and, and is irreconcilable between how we relate to the God of the, of the universe and to our fellow man on this planet that God has made. And we don't know how to make it right. That something that has gone wrong is in us. We have aligned ourselves with a world that can't seem to figure out how to get to God, and some of them don't even know if they want to or not. We need someone who's qualified to do something, to represent us. In the story of Israel, that group of people were the priests. They would represent the dilemma of brokenness to a holy and righteous judge. Could just anybody be a priest? No, we talked about that. They had to be from the family of who? Test. Family of Aaron, the tribe of Levi. You guys are good, man, I'm telling you. So could you just walk into first century tabernacle and say, hey, guys, I want to be a priest? You could not. You could not. And you would have to throw them, show them your genealogy. Look at Hebrews 5.4. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. In Israel, only one tribe and one family could be a priest. Family of Aaron, the tribe of Levi, they were qualified. And the people who would become priests, a select group, they were the go-betweens that represent the people before God. This was the law. Think about how those, that those devout Jews heard in the first felt when they heard about this Jewish teacher, that, that this healer, a, a prophet, some were calling him prophet, he, he comes into this village and he, and he heals a paralyzed man. There's a large crowd around him, and after he heals this man, he, he says he sees the faith of those who brought the man, and he makes this astounding statement in front of the whole crowd. Your sins are forgiven. I, we read that story, and we don't have the same reaction as the folks in the first century would have had. We know that Jesus forgives sin. That's not new to us. Those Jewish leaders had a drastically different view, a drastically different reaction. They were furious. This is a clear case of blasphemy. You can't just walk in and say someone's sins are forgiven. These leaders knew that according to their law, there was only one group of people who had the authority to pronounce a forgiveness of sin, and that was the, the family of Aaron, the tribe of Levi, the priests. They, there were guidelines for this. Sacrifices had to be made. You couldn't just walk in and forgive someone's sin. These leaders would have thought, this guy's no priest. Who does he think he is? On one occasion when Jesus heals this man and then forgave his sins, the teachers of the law were grumbling against him and amongst themselves. And it says that, saying that he's, he's a blasphemer. By what authority does he forgive sins? Jesus is acting like a priest. But by what authority is he a priest? Hebrews 5, 5 and 6. And the writer here is quoting from Psalms. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Do you remember who said that? That was God. Verse 6, as he, also, as he says also in another place, 
you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that came from Psalm 110. The author of Hebrews uses the scriptures in Psalms to direct us to some prophecies that proclaim that the Messiah is coming. And many of the Psalms actually talk about this. Tell us about this king that is to come that would be the son of Yahweh. And he would call Yahweh Father. But Psalm 110 says that the king coming from the line of David would not only be a king, he'd be a priest. A priest. But not a priest according to the normal priestly line, which is family of Aaron, tribe of Levi. This is a new kind of priesthood. A priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. This was absolutely out of the ordinary. The, le the leaders of Israel would have been throwing a fit. This was not the way that Israel got their priests. Who does this nobody think he is? He surely doesn't think he's the one to fulfill that role. To understand how Jesus is one of the, is the fulfillment of this, of the priesthood of Melchizedek, we need to continue in Hebrews chapter 7, and I'm going to speed it up because I'm running out of time. The first few ver uh, verses of Hebrews 7, starting at 1, are going to sound familiar to you. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. You remember the story. And to, and to him, Abram apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, nor, but resembling the Son of Man, he continues to be a priest forever. You'll, you may recall earlier that I, I said that I believe that Melchizedek was a, a mortal man, not an angel, not Jesus, not the Holy Spirit. You're going to find all these things. And you're going to say, okay, Barney, what do you do with verse 3 that we just read? This is where we must implement this, some, a tried and true Bible study method here. Our friend Melchizedek is a type of Christ. You'll recall that a type is something in the Old Testament that points us forward to the antitype in the New, right? You remember this? Okay. Melchizedek is pointing to Jesus who will fulfill the role of a high priest forever, forever. Further, in context, the scripture that we read in verse 3 clearly does not say that that man was the Son of God. It says he resembles the Son of God. Some translations say he was like the Son of God. The King James, I, says, I think, says he was made like unto the Son of God. If Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Christ, then the writer would have said, he's without father, mother, without beginning of days or end of life, he was the Son of God. But he didn't say that. He does not say that. He says he was like the Son of God. He was a type, a foreshadow of Jesus who was to come. So why is the scripture wor uh, worded this way? Context is going to provide us the answer here. We've already talked about the fact that in Israel, your genealogy meant everything, especially as it related to being a priest. A Levitical priest, tribe of Levi, family of Aaron, there were no exceptions. No exceptions. Even if your mother-in-law was not a good person, you couldn't be a priest. But this Melchizedek had no record of genealogy, yet he was a priest of the same God that Abram served. But in the order of this priesthood, genealogy doesn't matter. This priesthood is not like the temporary priesthood in Israel. The Levitical priesthood was filled, filled with broken, sinful men trying to represent a, a bunch of broken, sinful people. In the Levitical priesthood, you had to keep installing new priests. 
Why? Because they died. But the priesthood that Jesus came to fulfill was not temporary. It was eternal. Can you imagine what would happen if a priest came along whom death had no power over? What would happen? How long would this priesthood last? Forever. Forever. This is exactly what Psalm 110 says. The Messiah's priesthood lasts forever. The author of Hebrews sees a resemblance of the priesthood of Melchizedek to the priesthood that would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus. Now, the author of Hebrews goes on. I'm not going to read the whole story. I'm, I'm running out of time. But in, in verses 4 through 10, in summary, Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. So Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Levi and the whole tribe of priests that came from Abraham. So therefore, Melchizedek is superior to them as well because those all came from Abraham. Do you see it? If Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, what's his relation to the Le Levitical priesthood? It's superior to that. The author of Hebrews goes on to explain that Jesus' priesthood was not about family, family lineage, but a better hope has been given through which, listen to this, this is the cash part of this, through which we draw near to God. Jesus became our priest, not, not based on an oath taken by men, but an oath that was sworn by God. God installed Jesus. Jesus holds that priesthood permanently. Hebrews 7.16 is talking about Jesus. He says his, his priesthood didn't come because of descent, but the power of an indestructible life. A priest who would live forever wasn't going to be bothered by death. Didn't have to install a new one. I, I, I think about this, and do you know, we, we read the scripture where it talks about this, this veil in the temple and, and Jesus going through, through the veil. We know when Christ was on the cross, this veil gets torn apart, torn in two. Do you, you, do you recall that story? Do you know that that veil wasn't what was keeping people from God? That veil wasn't keeping them from God. It was the sin in their heart that was keeping people from God. It's the sin in your heart and my heart that keeps us from God. But thank God, we have a high priest, a high priest who's never going to die. He always lives to intercede for us, always. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek.